Thanks for joining us for today's message. Our mission here at Plum Creek is to help you experience intimacy with God, intentionality with family, and influence with others. Our hope is that what you hear today will impact and challenge you to love God and the people around you in a whole new way. We'd encourage you to check us out online at PlumCreekOnline.com to see how Plum Creek is impacting our community and what opportunities we might have for you or for your family to get connected. If you'd like to support the ministry we're doing here in Castle Rock, the two easiest ways are through our website, plumcreekonline.com give or via text. Just text any dollar amount to 720-606-5563. Thanks again for joining us today. Hey guys, welcome to week one of the new series that we're calling The Best Of. During this series, we're gonna have an opportunity to hear from some of my dear friends, but also great friends of Plum Creek. And so this week is no exception. Pastor Rob Coles, who many of you will know is the pastor of the Genesis Project up in Fort Collins, making a significant difference in Larimer County. Will you do me a favor? Then help me welcome Rob Coles as he comes to speak. Man, thank you. Thank you so much, man. What's up, Plum Creek Church? I love this place. Every time I come here, I just love, I want to move to Castle Rock, but that's a long commute to my church. So it is good to see you. I love your pastor so much. Just one of my dearest friends, Doug and Beth. Love them. Your staff is incredible here. Uh, the people that God has placed here is just amazing. Craig Harris is also a dear, dear friend. We go all the way back to when he was a teenager. I knew him when he was a teenager, and he's grown a lot, and you should be thankful that he's grown. <laughs> no. I love Craig so much. We worked together in Colorado Springs. He was part of our staff, and one of the highlights of my week was a standing breakfast where he and I would meet and just talk about life, and, and uh, he taught me as much as I ever taught him. And I just love this place. It's good to see you. Glad that you all are here this morning on a beautiful day in Colorado. I want to give you just a quick update. Uh, some of you know our story. Uh, others of you, this it, it won't make total sense to you, and I don't have time to tell the whole story, but this church has helped us tremendously in planting a church in the north side of Fort Collins in a uh, uh, high-need, high-crime area of our city. You all have invested in us, uh, and so every time I think of you, it, my heart is filled with gratitude for what you've done and the way that, not just financially, but the way that you've prayed and I've gotten emails from different people from Plum Creek. Doug is one of those guys that it seems like when I'm really at a hard point and struggling, I always get a text from him that just at the right moment that encourages me and uh, I'm just so grateful for all that you've done. So we planted a church, as I said, uh, a little over a year ago uh, in a building in Fort Collins that used to be the only strip club in the city. Uh, it's an incredible story. One of the owners came to know Jesus and found himself going to a men's Bible study in the morning and running a strip club at night, and that created a little tension, as you can imagine. And so, uh, long story, but at the end of the day, uh, that building was deeded over to us, and we planted a church in there to see what God could do to redeem a physical place where a lot of dreams died and create a place where new dreams could be dreamed. And you helped us do that. We uh, just add, we, we officially launched uh, in February of 2015, so just a little over a year ago. And uh, Gary and Jonathan from here came and were part of that celebration with us. Um, we just recently added our third Sunday morning service there. Uh, and so it's been awesome. God is blessed uh, in a great way. Our auditorium only holds 10 people, so it's not that big of a deal, but no, 
just kidding. It's not quite that small, but it feels like it compared to this place. And so uh, we're just excited about what God's doing. We just finished a week this morning, actually. Three times a year, we open our building um, to four families who are experiencing homelessness, and they come and move into our building. And we turn classrooms into hotel rooms, and we try to make them as nice as we can, and we bring dinner every night, and we get an opportunity to build new friends, new relationships, to play with the kids. And uh, we do that three times a year, and often those families just start coming to our church. We actually had three families who lived in our building last year who got housing, a part of our church, and were volunteering this year with the families that were there, and they just moved out this morning. We'll do it again in August, and that's an exciting thing. We try to use our building every day of the week, and so we have, uh, uh, through the school year, every day, we have a school bus that pulls up to our building. I love it when I get caught behind that school bus, coming back from an appointment in the afternoon about 3 o'clock, and the school bus stops and the big red lights flash. It's just amazing to see a bunch of little kids pile off the school bus and go into what used to be the only strip club in Fort Collins, and they're laughing and playing. And We do a thing called Homework Helpers, where we spend from about 3 to 5.30 with volunteers, uh, working with the kids, helping them with their homework, giving them a safe place to be while mom and dad are at work. Um, And then during the summer, kids who get a free lunch at school, when school lets out, how many of you know you still need lunch, even though school's not in? And so we have 30 plus kids that come to our building, get a free lunch, and and have about two hours of programming to give them some fun and activities. Um, And so it's just been an exciting, exciting deal. We have A groups that meet in our building. Our property butts up to a trailer park right behind us. Um, that has become our dear friends. It's our community. And we've done a lot of work in that trailer park and built relationships there. We own a trailer in there that we just finished remodeling and we just moved two interns, two young gals who just graduated from Colorado State University who have a passion for people and a passion for Jesus, moved into that trailer and they're building deeper relationships and beginning to strategize with the people who live in that community about ways that we can make that community better and solve problems that they perceive are problems. And so it's been a great, great partnership. This past Monday, uh, our church was on the front page of our local newspaper in Fort Collins, for a good reason. Usually when churches are in the paper, it's not so good. But this was to tell the story of what was happening uh, there in Fort Collins, and you all are a part of that. You have a hand in what God is doing 100 miles north of you, and I'm so grateful for that. Um, last night, I don't, I don't know if he's here this morning. Lucky if you're here, just wave at me. I don't know if he was able to make it down. To, ah, he did make it down. I just got to introduce you to a dear friend. Ashley did too. They were here last night. Um, a couple of people from Genesis Project with us. And uh, Lucky and Ashley live in the south part of Denver. They drive 85 miles every Sunday to come to Genesis Project. And, and he said it was okay to share just a little bit of his story. Of course, I asked him last night while I was talking, so what could he say? Um, and uh, Lucky, just a few months ago, Lucky's a biker, like a lot of the people who come to our church. Uh, we have a number of bikers, uh, like, like real bikers, not just like dudes who ride motorcycles on the weekend, but like bi- motorcycle club bikers. And uh, Lucky, just a few months ago, was an agnostic and a heroin addict. And uh, incredible story uh, that sometime maybe you'll hear. I want him to share it with our church, too. Um, But detoxed off of heroin and saw on Facebook that a biker friend from his past had come to our church, Genesis Project in Fort Collins, given his life to Jesus, 
And Lucky reached out to him, and this friend said, why don't you just come to my church? And so Lucky drove the 85 miles from South Denver to Fort Collins and surrendered his life to Jesus. The next week, Ashley came, and both, they never miss a Sunday, 85 miles they drive to go to church. And I'm so, so blessed to have them here with us. I love you guys, and uh, it means the world to me that uh, some of my people are here today, and so I'm excited about that. And, and I share that with you because of what, I love how you guys do a main thought for the day, and, and when I get the instructions, whenever I come speak here, it includes you to have a main thought for the day. I love that because I think half the sermons I preach, people leave and go, what, what was the point? <laughs> so, so this forces me to have a point, and so I have a point today of a main idea for the day. And, and I, I want you to write it down because it's profound, it's deep, and I don't even know if you're ready for it, but I'm going to give it to you. Ready? Here it is. Jesus changes everything. Say that with me. Jesus changes everything. All right, that's all you need. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thanks for coming. <laughs> no, not really. Some of you are like, that's my favorite preacher ever. <laughs> Five minutes. No, I'm going to say more. Um, I'm not sure we fully believe that. I'm not sure I believed that not that long ago. I would have said it. I had it as part of my creed, but I don't know that I actually lived my life in a way that believed that Jesus could absolutely change everything in a person's life who surrenders him, no matter how broken, no matter how tangled, no matter how messed up life has become. I don't know that I lived my life in a way that really believed that. I feared that I had settled into what a lot of the American church settles into, and that is this pseudo-American Christian religion that has all the trappings and all the creeds but doesn't actually live in a way that really believes Jesus can change the world. That still to this day, just like it was 2,000 years ago, the gospel of Jesus Christ can still transform cities, can still transform our nation. And if you don't get anything out of what I say today, nothing at all, I hope that you will leave with a renewed passion and a renewed faith to believe and to live as though you believe that Jesus really can change the world that he still can bring people from darkness to light, that he still can set captives free, and no matter how tangled up the web becomes in a person's life or how broken they are, Jesus can offer a new beginning to that person. I want you to believe that, because that's what Paul believed. Paul is the guy who wrote about half the New Testament. And Paul believed that at the core of his being. Everything inside of him believed that the hope of the world was found in Jesus. I want you to look at what's going to be our text that we're going to focus on today for the next few minutes that we're together. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. If you want to follow along on the screen, you can do that with me. Paul wrote this letter to a church that was located in the city of Rome. And I'll tell you a little bit about Rome in just a minute. But here's what he said. He said, I am obligated to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's pretty much everybody, Yes. Greeks, just Greeks, non-Greeks. It's like, are you Greek? It's for you. Non-Greek? Mm, you too. All right, so it's everybody. And Paul says, I'm obligated. That's why I'm eager. I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Now let me tell you just a little bit about Paul. If, you're not, if you haven't grown up in church, if church has not been your thing, if you have, you already know about Paul. But let me tell you just a little bit of his story. Paul's name used to be Saul, and he was a very different guy before he wrote words like that. 
Saul was a very smart, educated man. In fact, he was a Pharisee. If you read much of the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, you see that Jesus and the Pharisees were constantly at each other. They were constantly trying to get Jesus because they were a part of this elite group of religious separatists. And Paul was, or Saul was one of them. Saul was a poster boy for Pharisees. Saul was a Jew, but he also had the unique distinction of being a Roman citizen. And Saul had dedicated his life, his life mission, was to do everything in his power to destroy this new movement that had popped up recently, this movement of people who were following Jesus, claiming that Jesus, this Jew who was crucified, had actually risen from the dead and claiming that he was their king. Not just king of Rome, but king of kings, king of all. And Saul wanted to destroy that movement, and he gave his life to destroy. In fact, the first place we meet Saul in Scripture is in Acts chapter 7. Saul goes to a stoning party, not in the Colorado variety, but a different kind of stoning party, a stoning party where they take a guy by the name of Stephen, who was a follower of Jesus, who stood up for what he believed, and the crowd dragged him outside the city, separated him from the crowd, and then they began to bend over and pick up big rocks and throw those rocks, and those rocks would crash against his head and his face and his chest and his body until Stephen was dead. And we meet Saul there because it says all the people who stoned him took off their coats, their jackets, and they laid him at the feet of a young man named Saul. And chapter 8 begins by saying that Saul was there giving approval to Stephen's death. He approved of what he was watching. And then Saul went on a campaign to destroy this movement. He hated this movement. And the movement was called People of the Way. That was what they were, that's what we were called before we were called Christians. Christians actually came in a city called Antioch where people who didn't believe in Jesus just saw followers of Jesus and tagged them as Christians. But originally we were called people of the way. And Saul wanted to destroy people of the way and this movement that was afoot. He set himself in direct opposition, violent opposition, arresting and executing those who claimed to follow Jesus. But one day, if you know the story, one day he was on his way to a city called Damascus. And he had orders in hand when he got to Damascus to arrest every follower of Jesus. He encountered everyone he found. And on his way to the city, Saul encountered Jesus for himself. Saul had an experience with the Jesus that he had been persecuting. And he encountered his love and his grace and his forgiveness. And guess what? Jesus changed everything for Saul, everything. His life would never be the same again. Even his name would be changed from Saul to Paul. And Paul would experience the kind of new beginning that only happens through a relationship with Jesus, and it changed the way he lived. Let me just read you some of the things that he wrote about how his life had changed. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4, he gives us kind of his resume. All the things that he achieved... Before he encountered Jesus, he said, if anyone else here thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh in what you've done, I have more than you do. And here he gives just a snippet of his resume. Well, circumcised on the eighth day, good Jewish boy, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, he was a Pharisee. As for zeal, he persecuted the church. As for a legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. But then look at what he says in verse 7. But whatever was to my profit, 
I now consider all of that loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Everything I ever have done, everything I've ever achieved, all the accolades that have been heaped on me, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of just knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider all those things rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's how Jesus had impacted Saul, now Paul's life, transformed him. Look at what he wrote to a young man that he led to faith. A young man named Timothy, he led to Jesus. He was his spiritual father, and Timothy would go on to become a pastor. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul says, I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. In other words, Paul says, if he can do this for me, the worst of sinners, he can do this for you. He can do this for anyone. I called this message today, I called it Living the Dream mainly because I just suck at sermon titles, I'll be honest. It's not a great title. I usually call my sermons like part one. <laughs> part two, people go, hey, you should come to church. My pastor's preaching on part one. I'm just not very good at it. So, but I was thinking that when Paul encountered Jesus, he started living differently. And there's three ways I want to talk to you about living today. And so I just call it living the dream because every time, you know, I ask people nowadays, especially like young adults, you know, and you ask them, hey, how you doing? I'm living the dream. And so it just popped in my head, and I had to get the outline in at a certain time. So anyway, all right. So it's because of everything Jesus had done in Paul's life that he wrote these words. Now let's go back to our core text, and let's unpack it just a little bit. Verse 14, Romans chapter 1. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. I'm obligated. He, his experience with a God who loved him when he did not deserve to be loved who showed him mercy when he deserved punishment, who met him right where he was, on his way to destroy this movement of followers of Jesus and loved him right where he was. His experience of love and grace led Paul to live obligated. That's the first thing I want to encourage you with, to live obligated. That word obligated simply means to be in debt. Challenging. It's probably the first time you ever heard a pastor stand up in front of you and say, I challenge all of you to live in debt. I want you to live in debt. Not financial debt. Not some sort of coerced, uh, uh, oppressive debt. But I want you to live obligated the way Paul lived obligated. Which is that what he basically said to God is because of what you've done for me, there isn't anything I wouldn't do for you. Everything I am and everything I hope to be, everything I own, it is all yours. No one has loved me like you loved me, and no one could rescue me like you rescued me, and so all that I am is yours. He lived with that kind of debt and obligation. When God reaches down into the pit of our broken lives, and he lifts us out of that pit, and he breaks chains of addiction, and he breaks fear, and he breaks those chains and patterns from our past, we can't do anything else but live obligated. We can't do anything else but to share it. One of the things I, I, I love about, uh, we have a lot of people who come to our church, Genesis Project, who have come from the depth of darkness into light. 
We have a lot of people who were addicted to drugs and, and who now are living in recovery and living free and, and battling. And one of the things we've committed to is to be in authentic relationships when it's good and when it's bad. And so we're there when we celebrate sobriety and we're there when there's relapse and there's pain and there's hardship and we just commit we're gonna keep showing up. Because about 90% of ministry I've learned over the years of being a pastor is you just show up. You just show up. I mean, we strategize and we, and we plan and all that's important and all that's good, but at the end of the day, you just keep showing up. You keep loving people, and it's so rare in the world in which we live. If you just love people unconditionally with no strings attached, you'll stick out like a sore thumb and you'll draw broken, hurting people to you. And there's something about when people have come from the depth of darkness. We have, we have four or five former women, who, well, they're still women, but former, <laughs> let me reword that. Former dancers who used to come into our building and take off their clothes, and now they come into our building to praise Jesus. It's this incredible, incredible picture. Can I just tell you, when it's time to express love and gratitude and worship to God, you don't have to work them up. You don't have to talk them into why worship matters. They know what it is to go from darkness to light, the depth of darkness and the chains that held them back, and they've been set free. You can't stop them. You just can't stop them. It's, it, it's, it's, why, it's why these two guys drive 85 miles every single Sunday to get up and be in church. You can't stop that because they live obligated. There's an obligation. God has changed and transformed my life. Here's what I think the challenge is for, for me. And, and maybe you find yourself in this, and I think a, a large segment of the American church might find themselves locked in this as well. The challenge is that I'm not so sure we really understand what it took for Jesus to rescue us. Because most of us in this room are pretty decent people. And we're probably pretty decent people before Jesus changed our lives. I think maybe if we put it this way, we think it took less to rescue us than it took to rescue those other people, whoever those other people are. Whoever those people are that we kind of characterize as bad people. We probably would never say it out loud, but I believe it's why we don't live as debtors the way Paul lived. I think it was true of my life, and I'm learning as I'm pastoring and leading this church. And the reason is because we assess our goodness based on other people. So we just compare ourselves to others around us, and I don't know about you, but I can usually find someone worse than me. I have to look a little hard, but usually I find someone that's worse than me, and I can say, well, I'm not perfect. I'm better than that guy, better than she is. And we just kind of compare ourselves. And so somehow we get into our minds that, that somehow there's, there's goodness about us. And it was an easier rescue for us than it was for whoever you want to fill in the blank, the serial killer, the terrorist, child molester. You fill in the blank of the worst people you can imagine. And you go, hmm, don't, don't put me in that category. And I would just say grace is always scandalous. Grace is, grace is always offensive when we come to really, really, we want it in our lives, but I'm not sure how much we want it for those people. Here's how I view, here's how I view it, is, is that if I, were to, if I were to take my smartphone and like hit the button that says you are here on my, or whatever it's at, like current location, that's what it says on the map, the GPS thing, and then I figure out directions to the hotel where we stayed last night, it was just up the road, not too far away, but if I zoom in, there's a distance between them, it'll show me the route. If I zoom out far enough, and I've got the dot that says current location, the whole city of Castle Rock is just one dot. There's no difference, there's no separation. You know what I'm talking about with your smartphone, okay? Um, I think that's how God sees our sin. 
See, see we, we somehow think that the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness is less than someone else's gap, and God just sees it all the same. It took the same thing, the sacrifice that Jesus would give his life, that he would let his blood be shed, that he would give everything to reconcile you just like it did the worst person you can ever imagine. It took the same thing. Our gap is the same. We're helpless and we're hopeless. And it's only his sacrifice and his grace that can reconcile that gap. And once we get that in our heads, once that's in our heart, we live differently. We live obligated. We live in debt to a God who didn't have to. But he reached down even though we didn't deserve it. Scripture says while we were yet sinners, Christ died so that we could be reconciled. Man, my prayer for the American church is a renewed sense of gratitude for what Jesus has done in our lives that compels us to live more obligated and more in debt to who he is. Then Paul says this, verse 15. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Now, Rome, at this time, when Paul is writing this, Rome was a very violent, immoral, decadent place. I mean, it was a bad place. You, anywhere, in any place where you go, where the afternoon entertainment for the citizens of that city is to come together in a coliseum and watch gladiators kill themselves in bloody, gory battles, and that's what fuels entertainment. And, and, and just the common battles weren't enough, so they continued to explore new ways. And so criminals would be thrown out, sometimes clothed in, in like meat and, and thrown to dogs, and people would watch as entertainment while dogs ripped them apart. Lions, you name it. Christians were persecuted in that way, and Jews were persecuted in that way, and that was entertainment for this culture. Paul would actually be beheaded under the, the instruction of the emperor of Rome, Nero. You look at how sexually immoral that culture was. In fact, if you look at the end, towards the end of Romans chapter 1, you'll read a line as Paul describes the decay and the depravity of the human condition apart from God. And one of the lines is he says, they invented new ways of doing evil. New way, because normal evil became boring. And so they invented new ways of doing evil. That's what Rome was like. And what were Paul's thoughts when he thought about Rome, you know what they were? I can't wait to go there. I can't wait to go to Rome. His thoughts were not, let's, I better tuck tail and run and stay where I can be safe and where it's comfortable and where people think and believe just like I do. The more he learned of Rome, the more he wanted to go to Rome and to be there. I think the church needs to recapture an eagerness to run to the darkness and to run to brokenness. And that's the second thing I challenge you with today is to live eager. Paul lived eager. Instead, sometimes I fear that the church is secluding itself more and more in the safety and comfort of the Christian cul-de-sac. I heard a talk a while back a few years ago by a guy named Gary Haugen, the uh, founder of International Justice Mission. He talked about living bravely in the way of Jesus, and, and he used cul-de-sac as a metaphor. And he said that cul-de-sacs began to spring up years ago in residential uh, neighborhoods, developments all across the United States. And the reason that cul-de-sacs were, were created primarily was for safety. 
because they believed that there, there would be no through traffic, only traffic coming into that cul-de-sac, and so kids would be safer to play and to, you know, whatever, they no through traffic. What they found after years of having developments with cul-de-sacs is that more children are hit by cars when the car's backing up than when the car's going forward. And actually, they found out that cul-de-sacs can be very dangerous. And there are some new developments around the country that have outlawed cul-de-sacs. Some of you are like, I live in a cul-de-sac. You just destroyed my property value. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry about that. Whatever that means to real estate, it's an incredible metaphor to what's happening so much in the American church. That we seclude ourselves thinking we're going to be safe and comfortable within a Christian cul-de-sac and we don't even know the detriment that it is to our soul. We don't even realize the spiritual atrophy that is taking place inside of us to the point that we're settling for this this pseudo-Christian religion that looks nothing like what it means to actually follow Jesus. It's a faith that doesn't actually require any faith. My prayer for the church is that we'll recapture this desire to live eagerly. One of my favorite missionaries ever is a guy by the name of C.T. Studd. Isn't that not the best name in the world for a missionary? Like, good evening, Mr. Studd. How are you doing? Yeah, I just think that's cool. He died in 1931. Here's his, one of his most famous quotes. Some, some people wish to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Some people want to live within the sound of chapel bells, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. And I pray that the church will recapture that kind of passion. And here's why. Here's why. Look at verse verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The reason Paul was eager to go to Rome and to preach the gospel in Rome was because he knew the only hope for Rome was the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only hope for a city like that is Jesus. And what will make us eager to run to the darkness and to run to brokenness is when we come to believe again that the gospel is the only hope for America. It's the only hope for for Castle Rock. It troubles me when I see, like on Facebook, all these posts from Christians who are just afraid There's such a fear that has struck the church and we're afraid of who the next president's going to be. And if Hillary is the president, I'm moving to Canada. Trump's the president, I'm moving to Mexico. Of course, he won't get back, but I'm (laughs) moving away. All these fears about, and I get it, that's complicated. I don't know, we've never had an election like this before. And we read about terrorism. I just saw today, there was a shooting at a nightclub in Orlando last night where they have confirmed 50 are dead in a shoot, the, the, the largest mass shooting in the United States history. And it's scary. And we hear about countries where refugees are, are hundreds of thousands are fleeing because they're being wholesale slaughtered and we don't know what to do. And what if there's some bad ones who come here? And it's complicated. And I don't envy the people who have to make decisions. But God forbid that the church would say no to helping and loving and serving people because we're afraid. We're the ones called to be eager to take the gospel because the only hope is the gospel. We're afraid to go to the public bathroom these days. And I'm just saying, I don't, I'm not saying these are important issues. I'm not saying they're not complicated. But at the end of the day, the hope of America is not in government, it's not in institutions, it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the gospel. Let me give it to you and we're going to pray. Simple as we can put it. In, in Jesus' day, when, when a, a new king would come to power in Rome, they would send out heralds throughout the kingdom who would go to the ends of the kingdom to announce there's a new king. You know what that announcement was called? 
the gospel. Good news, that's what the gospel means. They would announce there was a new king and it would be accompanied with the statement, Caesar is Lord. Jesus takes this band of misfits that no one gave any chance to, that everyone had discarded and overlooked, and he says, I want you to go to the ends of the world. And I want you to announce there's a new king, not a king of Rome, but a king of kings and Lord of lords, a king of all creation. And Jesus is Lord. Now here's the beauty of this whole picture. This king of all kings invites whosoever will to be part of his kingdom. His standards are incredibly low. Whosoever would believe, that's the standard. You may come under the loving care and rule of this king. Only here's the catch. He invites you into his kingdom, not as a peasant to be exploited, but as a child to be adopted and given a seat at his table. Now that is good news. And that changes everything. Jesus changes everything. We have to live confident. That's the third point. Some of you won't sleep tonight if I don't give you that third point. We have to live confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means for any of you in this room, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've messed up your life, if you've just been a good person your whole life, but you haven't come to know Jesus, and today you're beginning to realize the gap in your life is just as real as anyone else's, he says to you, you can be forgiven. Forgiven. You get a seat at the table. Just like this king says to, to my friend Lucky, who didn't believe in him, who was addicted to heroin just a few months ago, he says, I want to adopt you. my son. There's a seat at the table. And that's the hope. That's the hope of the world. It's the gospel. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you've rescued us. And thank you just seems so inadequate. And it is. It's not just our words, God. The only thank you that makes sense is to offer you all of who we are. Our whole lives we lay at your feet. Thank you for rescuing us. And God, for anyone in this room that has yet, maybe even for the, never for the first time, to receive that forgiveness that you've made available and be reconciled to you, would you let this be the day where faith arises in their heart and they trust that Jesus, what you did, that sacrifice was enough to forgive everything. All past, all failure, all sin, all hurt, all brokenness. You, it was enough. And give them the strength to just receive that forgiveness and to turn from living for themselves and to surrender fully to you, to follow you and to declare you not only as king of kings but my king, king of my life, all that I am is yours. And God, would you continue to fan a fire at Plum Creek Church to live obligated because of what you've done and to live eager and confident, to run to the darkness, to run to brokenness, no matter what socioeconomic picture it takes, rich and poor and educated, uneducated, it doesn't matter. We're all broken and all in desperate need of being rescued and the only hope of rescue is, is this gospel. It's Jesus. Let this church forever be about lifting up Jesus. I pray it in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. If you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time today, congratulations. We are so excited for you, and we'd love to equip you with some resources, some next steps, and a complimentary gift. Just text the word FAITH 
to 40650. And if today you just need to talk to someone or would like to have someone pray with you, you can call our church office at 303-663-1714 and one of our pastors would be happy to spend some time with you. From everyone here at Plum Creek, have a great day.